Raising the Bar podcast, brought to you by the Association of Gray's Inn Students. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Meet the Barrister series for the Raising the Bar podcast with me, Alana Hughes. In the Meet the Barrister series, I speak to a different guest barrister in each episode and discuss their path to the bar and their practice, as well as any other interesting topic of discussion that pops up. The aim of this series is to demonstrate that the bar is not a one-size-fits-all sort of profession, as it is sometimes wrongly assumed to be. Barristers come from a wide variety of backgrounds and specialise in many different areas of law. There is something for everyone. Before I introduce my guest, I just want to note that this episode is being recorded remotely. I am at my home and my guest is in theirs due to social distancing measures in the ongoing COVID-19 crisis. And there may therefore be a slight reduction in audio quality in this episode. We hope you won't mind. My guest today is Mary Pryor QC of 36 Group Chambers London. Mary was called to the bar in 1990 and took silk in 2017. She specialises in homicide and serious sexual offences cases. Before moving into private practice, Mary worked as a court clerk for six years before completing a sponsored pupillage with the CPS, where she worked as a crime prosecutor and senior crime prosecutor for another six years. Mary is a prominent advocate for social mobility and diversity at the bar. She has very kindly joined me this evening to tell us about her journey to the bar and share some words of encouragement and advice to people who might often have the thought that someone like me does not belong in this profession. Mary, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm very well, Alana. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Guests don't often ask me that question. (laughs) Well, they should. So, Mary, your interest in law was initially sparked by an A-level but yes. from the beginning, there was a hesitance to chase a career as a lawyer. It, the A-level for you provided the opportunity and a law degree provided the opportunity for you to do a good degree as opposed to being any sort of specific gateway into a career at the bar. What was it then initially that transformed law from an interest into a serious career possibility for you? Well, that's a really good question. And the answer is slightly strange, I'm afraid, Alana, because I didn't think during the course of my law degree that I would end up lawyer because people like me didn't become lawyers. I was the first in my family to go to university. And my aim was to get a degree so that I could get a job where I didn't go to work in the dark or come home in the dark, not a factory job, in other words. And so that was my purpose in doing a degree. And even at the end of it, I didn't really think that I could have a career in law because I went to work for a company that sold Volvo cars for 12 months. I have to tell you, Alana, I was terrible at it. (laughs) Absolutely terrible. But coming towards the end of that 12-month period, I spotted an advert in the local newspaper for a magistrate's court clerk which um, was a job that you simply needed a law degree for. So I went and did that. And it was whilst I was there watching advocates in court that I suddenly thought, I think I could do this. And it's interesting that you mention that because often it takes exposure to the profession 
to see what actually happens, to feel that inside you that actually this is something that I might do. But for a lot of people, unfortunately, it's the exposure aspect that is the problem. If they don't have any family in the profession or they don't have any connections. And so for you then, that that realisation came a little bit later than it may have come for other people who who do have, you know, those privileges. Yes, it did. And when people have privilege, they have no concept of what it's like to be someone who doesn't have privilege. And so even in interviews, when I was looking for tenancies, for example, people would say to me, well, why on earth didn't you do any of the following things during your degree or uh, even before you did your degree? And the answer for the most part was I was having to work in part time jobs to earn money to afford to go and study. And that had never been a concept that the people asking me the questions had considered. And I think you know, just touching on that point, um, I was in a very similar situation coming through my degree and in pupillage interviews, you know, that question was asked of me, especially in my scholarship interviews for Grace. You know, there there are going to be inevitable gaps in your CV when you are having to have um the commitment of having a part time job. But I think something that worked for me, and you might agree, it might work for others as well, is the best way to be about that situation is just to be brutally honest and don't leave the gaps to be misunderstood or for to to have people read between the lines it's just best to explain what your circumstances were and often that's meant met with complete understanding i think what you need to do is to own the success that you have got and to see what you have done as an achievement and sometimes it's a far greater achievement to have held down a full or part-time job or caring responsibilities alongside study. I think particularly in Grey's Inn, we have a really great tradition of embracing everyone uh, from all cultures, all backgrounds, all traditions. And what we want to see is excellence. And excellence in most cases as a member of the bar involves communication. Can you talk to people? And if you can talk to people, and a great way of showing that is because of jobs you've done where you have to speak to complete strangers. Those are great skills, much underestimated from students, not from the people interviewing them. But I think it's often, Alana, the beginning of people starting a process of saying, not only it's not for me, but I will not be good enough. And that's what we've got to work on. And that leads nicely to what I wanted to discuss with you, which was the importance of role models. You are known for your commitment to social mobility at the bar and you, you do a lot of work. Um, you're, you're very active on Twitter, webinars, seminars, um, advocacy training, your work as a interviewer for Grey's Inn on, on the scholarship panels, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. What is it that makes you want to do this work? Obviously, you, you must see that there's a need for it. For this profession, this tremendous profession to survive and to grow, it must reflect the society we serve. And it is a service. This is a vocation as well as a profession. And for us to have the very best candidates, we need to have people from all walks of life, from all faiths, of all colour. And if we don't, we do a disservice to the people who we serve And what I found when I started out was there were a lot of people who were willing to climb over me in the 
race that they had to progress, both men and women, sadly. And I was determined if I ever reached the stage of having any kind of position within this profession to walk beside the youngsters who were starting out and my colleagues, because it seems to me that the most wonderful thing in any job is the people around you and helping people to progress. Because law is a marathon, not a sprint. You will see people on your way up and you will see people on your way down. And there is no need ever to tread on someone, to trample on someone, to make them feel less than. So if I can do anything to encourage people to join and remain within this profession, to eradicate it from racism and sexism and any form of discrimination, then I will. I listened to your podcast episode with Sally Penny for the Talking Law podcast and in it you mentioned how instrumental Michelle Simpson, criminal practice manager at 36 Group, was uh, for you in your application for Silk. And Michelle is one of the few female practice managers that you mentioned in that podcast. Um, But what struck me was, and what I wanted to ask you in relation to that, is what was it that held you back at that time from taking the plunge for Silk, even after all of your years of success as a senior junior? My success as a senior junior came from hard work and determination, but it came at at a cost because I had to learn all manner of things that I didn't know about and couldn't read in a book in order to be part of this group of people because I had a very, very working class background. And I think despite my success, and I was a very successful junior barrister, I didn't feel that someone like me really was entitled to a profession like this, to a career like this. It took me a very, very long time to feel that I was worth it, that I fitted in, that I was equal to my peers. And I think that is one of the reasons why I hesitated a long time about applying for Silk, because I didn't think people like me became a barrister, but I most certainly didn't think people like me became a Silk. And I suppose then that that links quite nicely to the importance of role models, because it was the fact then that someone else, Michelle, believed in you and encouraged you to do it that that in the end made you take the plunge. So we need to surround ourselves with people in this profession who are going to lift us up and encourage us and build us up and sort of turn deaf ears onto the naysayers. Alana, that's so true. It is or can be, and particularly now during COVID, it can be a very lonely profession. Because often you are against the person who you are in court with. It's very rare that there is teamwork in the traditional sense of the word. And you sometimes have very difficult days. Often you have to make judgment calls, make tactical decisions at the last minute. And it is hard. It's hard work, this profession. And you can easily become disillusioned or frustrated or just isolated. And that's why it's absolutely essential that you surround yourself with positive people who are willing to assist you in the same way that you will assist them. 
so that you walk beside each other and provide a good and strong support network. So you specialise in homicide and serious sexual offences cases, as I mentioned in my introduction. And obviously the nature of, of that work is very serious. It's heavy. There are high, high stakes. What are the required attributes for a barrister who specialises in this area of work? The first thing that you need to do, particularly when dealing with sex offences, is to understand that most of the people who need to be heard, most of the victims of sexual offences, have been traumatised emotionally and sometimes physically by what's happened to them. In the same way, if you are defending someone who may have been falsely accused of such matters, they will also have been traumatised and may feel completely as if their life is entirely over. So the first thing that you must have is really good communication skills. The second thing that you must have is an understanding that it's not about you. This job is not about how special or important you are. It is about being a voice for the person that you're representing. The next thing that you must have is an understanding of human nature, trying to be able to get the best out of someone. And the other thing, the fourth thing that you must have is the willingness and understanding that you must constantly learn. We're all learning new techniques of questioning, new techniques of getting the best out of witnesses, technology, allowing those who would never in the past have been able to be heard, the very young, the very old, those with learning and communication difficulties. So you must always have an open mind. And finally, the real thing that's difficult to develop, but you must develop it, is to understand that what is required of you is your forensic skills as an advocate. You mustn't get involved in the work. You mustn't take sides or have your work impeded in any way by over-emotion and over-sympathy. What is required of you it is your forensic skill. And that is what's important. And, and it seems to me if you have all those qualities, you will make an excellent advocate in this field. Do you think to an extent that it it might be quite normal for barristers who are very young in their practice to struggle with that last requirement, uh, especially whenever, you know, the, the issues, say, for example, that you, you would deal with on a daily basis may be sort of the sort of thing that people never come across in their ordinary lives. And so initially there might be sort of a difficulty in that not getting involved too heavily, as you say. Do you think it comes with experience? It's not something that you can expect yourself to do from day one. I think from day one, you need to understand that you're going to feel great emotion in your first few years of practice and to understand that it's going to happen and learn ways of coping with it and dealing with it. In the past, you were simply told, and I use these words deliberately, to man up and get on with it because it was part of the job. We don't do that anymore with young practitioners. There is a large support network. Gray's Inn has a great student's body and a body of practitioners who are willing to act as mentors. We also, uh, in chambers, have 
wellness groups and the Bar Council also have wellness groups and mentors if they are required. So what young practitioners need is a body of people supporting them so that if they are finding it difficult, they have someone to phone who will say, I understand, I know how difficult it can be. And here are some things that have worked for me to help. Do you feel that you are good at grafting a an effective work-life balance for yourself? Is this something that you might have got better at as your practice has um, developed? Or do you feel that you still have maybe a little bit more work to do in terms of being able to switch off? <laughs> Great question. I I'm not sure that I've ever had a really good work-life balance because if you've grown up without money, as I did, and if you've grown up in poverty, not only in the sense of not having any money, but almost like having an arrow over your head uh, because everything you wear and say and the way you behave distances you from uh, others. If you've grown up like that, it's very difficult to say no to work because you are always worried about where the next brief will come from. Being self-employed is, is a bit of a challenge for those who've become socially mobile. But what I learned to do over the years uh, was to remember that if I didn't get enough sleep and if I didn't get enough switch off time, I wasn't doing my job as well as I would otherwise be doing it. And of course, I had to learn a work life balance because I have five sons and a dog and I have to do all the ordinary things that mums and wives and sisters and friends do. So the key for me has been a diary and a dog. A diary and a dog. <laughs> that sounds great. What sort of dog is it? She is a cross between a Springer Spaniel and a Poodle, which Gosh. I think is called a Sprudel. Loads of energy from the Springer side then. Loads of energy. She barks almost as though singing to the moon. She is always utterly thrilled to see me in a way that none of my children or husband ever been really <laughs> and I know that whenever I see her and I've had a very long day within two minutes I'm smiling I've put on a pair of wellies we're off out walking and within five or ten minutes the day starts to remove itself from my body from from my mind and I start to feel much better. How has COVID impacted your sort of your work-life balance, but also in the sense that some some barristers that I've spoken to previously have mentioned that, you know, the law can be quite all-consuming at all times generally anyway. But when you are sort of stuck at home and it's like the nine to five or nine to six or whatever hours you want to work a day are kind of almost moulded into the entire morning, the entire evening, and there's no switch off time. Have you found that it's been better for you or, or worse? Different, I think, is probably the best word, Alana. I have loved not getting up so early mm. because ordinarily I get up somewhere between five and six. So staying in bed till eight o'clock is like being on holiday. And I've very much enjoyed not having to put a suit on every day in order to sit in front of a screen for 10 minutes for a hearing. I've been thrilled not to have to travel for four hours or more 
to do a 10 minute hearing. That's been a, a marvellous thing. And I've also very much enjoyed being able to spend more time with my husband and with my children because I'm not doing all of that travelling. Going forward then, this this situation has potentially opened up a can of worms in terms of a serious discussion might need to take place in the sense that it just doesn't make logical sense to travel three or four or five even hours a day for a 10 minute hearing. And have you found that those hearings have been able to effectively, the mentions, I mean, you know, the 10 minute, 15 minute have been able to effectively happen virtually? Yes, they have. And you're so right, Alana, we, we do need to think about how we work, our ways of working, because just because we've done something for a long time doesn't mean we have to continue to do it, particularly in circumstances where it can limit or in fact prevent certain groups of people from practising at the criminal bar, at the family bar, in civil courts. So, for example, many, many women give up a career at the criminal bar when they have children because they simply can't manage, they can't juggle the travelling and the childcare. And that's a great loss to the profession. The same applies in in all aspects of the profession, I know, but significantly more, I think, in in criminal law. And if we are able to organise our diaries so that we can cover our own work in terms of mentions and short hearings, so that we don't have to spend hours and hours travelling on days when it's not a trial. It will be for the benefit of the profession as a whole, and as a result, for the benefit of those we represent. I just wanted to discuss now your work that you have done as an interviewer for Grey's Inn Scholarships. Hopefully, a lot of people who listen to this podcast will be prospective scholars, prospective BPTC or GDL students interested in a career. And I suppose a poignant question for me to ask on behalf of them might be, what are some of the things that you really look for in a candidate who is sitting in front of you wanting a scholarship to pursue a career at the bar? I want to see someone who wants to be a barrister. And we have people who come along who don't really know what a barrister does and aren't really sure what qualities and skills they require. So I think what I would say to people who want to win a scholarship is to do your research, because there is so much that you can find on the Gray's Inn website, on the Bar Council website, and just on the internet about what being a barrister means and what you have to do. And to use, particularly now in COVID times, Alana, where much more is on offer online, to use these times to take part in online mooting or um, taking part in discussions and debates, listening in to things like podcasts. Because if you do that, it shows someone like me that actually you are interested in being a barrister. It's what you are looking to do. It's what you want. And when someone has done those things, it it becomes obvious. And they've made connections both on, say, LinkedIn and Twitter or, or with other people in the inn from which they've benefited. So each time that you do one of these things, it's a bit like throwing a pebble in the river. 
the, the ripples go. And when they do go, you have more and more opportunities. For people who have no connections, no legal connections, it does take courage to put yourself forward for something like mooting. Of course it does. It must be terrifying to even think about it. But my advice would be just give it a go. Give it a go in circumstances where no one is going to judge you badly and you can make your mistakes and practice because that's the benefit of these COVID times. You can do two or three things of an evening and you don't have to move from your armchair. And if people haven't done those things, it, it does become obvious. Now, these things are free. And they can be done in the evenings at a time when perhaps parents have put children to bed or caring responsibilities are less. And so it is a much more socially inclusive time. And there are lots and lots of people who are offering their services online for free to students. So what I'd like to see is people who are taking advantage of what's on offer. You, you just mentioned mooting and I just want to read out a recent tweet of yours that um, I came across back when you when you tweeted it, actually, not not in relation specific because I do follow you, but I think your Twitter is fantastic. And anybody who, who is listening, who is interested in following a QC, who is very active and encouraging on Twitter, Mary's handle is, let me just give you a little plug, Mary. Thank um, you. At prior QC. So there we go. You can go on Twitter and follow Mary there, but you'll... You'll see things on Mary's Twitter like this. Mary said, are you getting ready to go to university to study law? Use your first two years wisely and make sure you do mooting, debating, shadowing and mini pupillages because you won't have time in year three. Start this course with an end in mind and do all you can to achieve it. And I think what struck me from that is the need for proactivity. You cannot rest on your laurels if you want to get into this profession, you've got to be proactive in arming yourself as much as possible before every interview with as much experience, as much exposure as you possibly can to sort of demonstrate that you want it. Yes, you do. And you need to think about it as if you are looking at winning a prize. So if I were to say to you, if you do this, you can earn a lot of money every year, almost like winning the lottery, except it's over the course of your lifetime rather than all at once. You'd put a lot of effort in to do that. And that's what this is. This job is, I think, the best prize ever. You will not get a better job than being a barrister. And therefore, you need to work at it. Anything that's worth having in life is worth working at. And what happens is we have students who come along after three years with a first class honours degree and nothing else. They haven't done a thing to find out even whether they're any good at being a barrister, any good at advocacy. They have simply focused on their degree. And what I've found over this summer, speaking to a lot of students, is that they were going to do it. They were going to get round to doing it, but they didn't do it in year one because they had such a lot of fun and they didn't do it in year two because they sort of didn't get round to it. And then after three years, they, did, they didn't have the time to do it because they had so much work to do and therefore they didn't do anything at all. And there are a lot of people who feel that they've got a law degree and that is some sort of rite of passage 
So in other words, I've got my law degree, now give me a job. And if anybody still thinks that who's listening, you're wrong. It doesn't work like that. You will be competing with lots of other people who've got the same qualification as you, but who have set out from the time they start their law degree to make sure they use those three years to the best of their ability and to their advantage to do everything they can to prepare themselves for their career in law. And just just finally, Mary, I just wanted to discuss the importance of that preparation and, and that need to be proactive and be prepared, particularly in the context of social mobility, where you have not come from a background where, say, for example, public speaking has been part of part of your childhood or you don't have any connections in, in law and you've not been exposed to sort of um, legalese or any sort of the way that barristers or, or lawyers behave or interact with others in your in your lifetime. You've not been fortunate enough to therefore to get any informal work experience or the likes. Without, you know, it, it, it is unfair that this is the case, but but it, it sort of it sort of is the reality for a lot of people that there just needs to be an enormous effort from you to bring your CV and your experience up to the standard required for uh, scholarship interviews or for pupillage interviews. And so from the get go, it just needs to be that sort of acceptance that, OK, well, you know what? I don't have any connections in law. Um, I haven't had XYZ that would be great to have had by now, but <laughs> there are lots of people and lots of places where I can get that. And it just takes a little bit of looking and actually not even really a little bit of looking because as soon as you put it into Google, it's all there. And especially with Greys, the likes of this podcast, for example, um, Twitter, LinkedIn. And something that I found in my experience coming through was that I never, ever had a barrister who was anything less than extremely accommodating in terms of giving advice or helping me to get experience. And I really do feel that this profession is one where we do all look after each other and you need to feel like you will be welcomed and that you can get the experience you need, but you just need to put yourself out there for it. Do you know what, Alana? The biggest problem that most people have who have come from a non-traditional background is themselves. It isn't the people within this glorious profession who are for the most part warm and welcoming and who will help, as you said. It is their belief, which comes, I think, just from being taught down to your entire life, but it's their belief that they'll be found wanting or we're not going to want them or that, that they just don't feel that they can do any of these things because they don't know how to start. But actually... Instead of seeing everything that you have as a disadvantage, you, you need to start by understanding that you have real advantages in coming from a socially mobile background. Because you will know that in order to get the same qualifications as other people, you've had to work so, so much harder. And so that drive, determination and resilience is what will make you shine. But you have to want it enough to do that really difficult thing for those who are socially mobile, and which is to understand that you might fail uh, and to 
give it a go and just stand up and say something. I had the privilege last year and it was a tremendous privilege of going to the circuit Grays in Advocacy Day in Birmingham. And there were a wonderful bunch of young people of all faiths, all colours, and all were brilliantly clever and young. Most of them from socially uh, mobile backgrounds. In other words, the first in their family to go to university. Many were mature students. Many had disabilities. It was just such an amazing bunch. And at the end of the day, after they'd done all of this advocacy, which they all did really well, uh, I had them all in a room together and I asked them what their best quality was. And there was silence. Silence. And I, because I'm a mum, I suppose, and because I'm used to speaking to teenagers, I said, right, come on, up you get, stood them all up. And I made them look at each other and I said, some of the people you're looking at are going to be superb, busy advocates. Some are going to be judges. Some are going to be trailblazers. What are you going to be? Who are you going to be? Now, tell me what your best quality is. And then we started. So I think what we must, as a profession, offer students is some guidance about the old imposter syndrome and understanding that there is a place in this profession for you. We want you. We will welcome you. But you must want it back and you must do everything you can, as you've done all through your life up until now, to keep shining. And if you do that, this profession will welcome you because the only thing that we care about is your ability. I can say that once I got into this profession, no one asked me what my mum or dad did or where I went to school or what my A-level grades were or anything of that nature. I was accepted because of my ability. And so will you be. One final question, Mary, and I think I know the answer, but I just love to ask this question anyway. <laughs> Do you love your job? And if so, why? I love my job beyond measure. And I love my job because each and every day I must think intellectually and I must pit my wits against someone of equal or greater intelligence than me. I must represent the most vulnerable in society and I must do so in a way that combines my knowledge of law and my ability to communicate to a jury who are just members of the public. And I never say ordinary members of the public because I don't think anyone is ordinary. Almost everyone I've ever met has been extraordinary. And as a woman, there are two specific things about this job that I utterly adore. The first is I do not have to worry about what I wear every day because what I wear every day is almost the same school uniform I wore throughout my uh, school life. I wear a black suit and a white shirt. There we are. Wonderful. And the second thing I love about this job as a woman is that the older I get, the more respected I am. And even now, 
even these days, there are very few jobs where as you age as a woman, you are respected more. I don't have a date where I'm going to be slung off because my face doesn't fit. My dad always used to say, by the way, I had a great face for radio. So I've never been a person who's relied on my looks. I've always been a person that relies on my abilities. And I hope more than anything on my humanity. And I am enjoying the fact that I'm in my 50s now. And as I carry on in this profession, uh, I am valued, I'm respected, and I can just be myself carrying on in my work, learning every day. There is not a day that goes by where I don't learn something new as to how to make my craft better. I think now, after 30 years, I'm just about getting it right. I've got a long way to go then. <laughs> you... <laughs> I think I have a long way to go, Alana. But I think that's the pleasure of this job, isn't it? That you can always learn more. There's exactly. always something that you can improve on. And if you want this job and if you want to be an advocate, you'll always want to do that. And the other thing is that the people in this profession are just so much fun to be around. You can meet someone you've never met before and have a cup of tea with them and you become great friends very quickly because we have far more in common than divides us. And the inn is a wonderful place for that. The inn is a sanctuary. It's a place where we are constantly trying to make life better for our members and our students. Uh, last night, I was in a two-hour meeting where we were trying to discuss how to make sure again and again that our uh, application process and our interview process is fair and transparent uh, working for everyone. There's a huge bunch of people working on social mobility and student issues. I adore it. I think it is one of those places where you walk into that courtyard, you feel a sense of peace. And for me, I feel very much like I'm going home. Do you know, Alana, when I was called to the bar, my mum, who spent her life packing tiles in a factory, came down to London I think for the first time in her life on the train and stood in a place of what appeared to me at the time to be great privilege, sort of place that I'd never stood in until I went to Gray's Inn. Uh, and she stood in the Great Hall looking down on me as I was called to the bar. And afterwards, several of the benches, a couple of Lord Justices, came up to her and took the trouble to talk to her and to talk to her about her life in the North East. Uh, and they ended up talking about Caster Kippers and her love of kippers. I don't know where it all came <laughs> from. But uh, my mum died young. She died at 63 because she'd been working in factories all her life. But right until the day she died, she never forgot that generosity of spirit and kindness and, and nor shall I, which is why, again, I think we're just so privileged to be part of this amazing, amazing inn. Mary, thank you so much. It has been so lovely to speak to you. I hope when this episode goes live that your follower count on Twitter takes a little bit of a rocket because you deserve it. 
<laughs> and uh, really, really, thank thank you so, so much. It's been so, you know, I, I feel inspired. I feel like I'm now going to be, I'm starting people in a few weeks. Um, I'm starting to hit that sort of point where, yeah, I mean, it's, wow. it's crunch time now. So uh, as you say, you know, the imposter syndrome and you're just, you're, overthinking and deep thinking every possible thing that could go wrong but this sort of conversation just really sort of reminds me that you work hard enough you're going to make it and it's going to be fine so thank you so much Alana it's been a great pleasure can I just say that you are embarking on the most amazing career ever and if at any stage you feel as I'm sure you will uh, an imposter or, or or that it's just not um, just not happening as quickly as you'd like and it's all a bit scary and so on just remember there are a great body of people in your inn and in this profession who will be thrilled to walk beside you as you shine I, I hope it goes really well Mary thank you so much thanks for listening to the Raising the Bar podcast please subscribe rate and review and for more information, check us out on Twitter at RaisingTheBarGI.